Man, I love that. That's stressful, wasn't it, John? <laughs> it's lit. You did it. I don't know how you did that. That's a stressful job. I, we, would, we would not have been able to continue had you not lit that. So thank you all for doing that, man. It's, it's really cool seeing uh, over the course of the week, each of those candles go out and then together enjoying that the light of the world left a tomb, especially vacant 2,000 years ago together. We can enjoy that. So uh, we're going to continue our morning in prayer. And then uh, we're going to climb into our, our message from John chapter 15. Pray with me if you would. Lord, this morning we want to lift up a people, uh, a people group, the Haragi Arama people of Ethiopia. Lord, 7 million people, uh, 5% of which are Christian. Lord, this is the most, uh, the most represented Christian uh, group of all the unreached peoples that we've prayed for to date. Lord, of those 5% that know you, that have a relationship with you, we're praying for them right now. We're asking you that they would be salty, bright, and aromatic, that they would be bold with the gospel, that you would use them to bring the good news to the other peoples in their people group. Lord, we pray that you would uh, compel them, that you would give them a burden for those who don't know you, and Lord, that you would draw this people group to your name. Lord, we entrust them to you this morning. Lord, also this morning, we want to just pray that you would bless this time that we have together as a, as a church family. We want to pray for our other churches collectively in our, in our community this morning. Some wonderful, wonderful gatherings are going on right now with wonderful peoples. And Lord, we are so thankful that you have a presence in Greenville, Texas. We celebrate the churches in this community. We celebrate Christ among them. We pray for health. We pray for wholeness. We pray that you would guard us from a spirit of competition. Uh, we pray that you would protect our lips and our hearts from any, uh, any criticism for one another, that we would be boasting of Christ among this, these, these fellow churches in our community, sister churches, and that you would advance the kingdom through the people of God in this community, being faithful. Lord, we are entrusting them to you. We're asking you to do the same, the same with us. Lord, we are asking also in these next few minutes to speak to us, uh, that you would uh, just equip us. Uh, that you would stir our hearts with the good news of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Stand with me, if you would, for reading from John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Lord, speak to us from these words. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all have a seat. I'll give you a little bit of context to where we are in this passage. Beginning in chapter 13 of John through chapter 18 of John, that's one night. It's the night of our Lord's arrest and trials. It's the night of his supper. In chapter 15, we're moving from the scene of the supper to somewhere in either to the garden or on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples have shared the final meal. The Lord has uh, washed their feet. 
He's identified his betrayer, and Judas has left the table. He's prepared his disciples for his departure. They've been confused. We considered that together last week. He's informed Peter that he was going to betray him. And then at the end of chapter 14, in verse 31, he says, Rise, let us go from here. They leave the Lord's Supper context to go to the garden. Years ago, I had the chance to walk these steps uh, up the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley. One of the things that struck me about the Holy Land is it's much smaller than you would imagine. The Kidron Valley is, it looks like something you could hit a golf ball across. It's not really that big. But the Mount of Olives, I'll tell you this about the Mount of Olives, it is incredibly steep. I cannot imagine that they would have had a conversation on the way up the Mount of Olives because everybody that walked it with me, our tongues were hanging out. So I'm imagining that they probably had this conversation in the garden before the night of prayer. We don't know this for sure. We don't know where it took place. We don't know the exact moment that it took place. But I can't but imagine that our Lord didn't have eye contact with his disciples at that point. I can't but imagine that they had extreme and profound attentiveness in these moments. Here they sit together, the purified church, 11 of them, minus the one betrayer. 11 of them with their Lord, ready to hear his potent and final teaching. I want to give you kind of a plan for the morning so you kind of have a little audible uh, map where we're going. We're going to spend the majority of our time just considering this I am statement, I am the true vine. We're just going to sort of break that down and climb into that, a very simple sermon, but I believe that it will be profound, hopefully as profound as it was 2,000 years ago. He starts with an I am statement. The I am, actually, that phrase actually comes from our Lord, our, our, from God speaking to Moses in the burning bush when he told Moses to lead his people out of, out of Egypt. Uh, Moses said, well, who shall I say sent me? And he identified himself as the I am. He says, the I, I am that I am sent you. So that name, actually, from that name is the name Yahweh is derived. So for Jesus to show up and to make these statements, identifying himself as I am, he's actually saying that he is God. Let's just start right there. When a man shows up and said, says he's God, he's either crazy or he might actually be God. Now just consider how profound that statement is. He's not saying he's like God. He's saying he is God. He is using God's name and saying, I am God the Son and I am the Son of God. This is a profound statement. He has seven of them in the book of John. There's actually more than that, and I'll share with you a couple of obscure ones. But the ones we've considered the last six weeks, beginning in John chapter 6, is I am the living bread. John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. John chapter 10, I am the door. Also in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. John 11, after he raises Lazarus from the dead, he says, I am the resurrection and the life, or when he raises him from the dead. John 14, we considered last week, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then this morning, I am the true vine. There are some other obscure ones in the book of John. After he walks on the Sea of Galilee, and he gets in the boat, and they're all scared to death because they believe they've seen a ghost, he says, I am. Do not be afraid, I am. It's a fitting reference. He's not just, ah, it's just me, guys. 
I am God is getting into the boat. Another profound time, if you were here Friday at 3 p.m. when we read the Passion account, when he was arrested, he identified himself as the I am. And if you might remember, you might consider what happened. They fell to the ground just at that statement. This is a profound and potent declaration. I am the true God. Jesus said he's the son of God and God the son. Make no mistake. He said he's the true vine. I want to talk about true for a moment. I thought about, you know, how do we define something, a word that we use often in a number of different ways in the way that they would want it defined. First of all, the way we define it, I just Googled it. You know, you, you're going to do what most people do and go to the Google and ask what Google says true is. The first four things that came up when I just searched for the word true, okay, not truth defined, just true, was a ballet. I didn't even know. It's weird. A ballet, that was the first thing. A coffee shop in Dallas was the second. It must be good. for it to, Like number two on Google, a coffee shop in Dallas. Hospice care. Like true hospice is the name of it. And here's the fourth one, a commercial refrigerator company. Isn't that crazy? What a crazy collection. That's the first four entries on Google. I use the word from time to time where I'm talking about a bicycle wheel. When a bicycle wheel is true, it means it's straight. Some of you do carpentry. You maybe use that term for something that is true. And for A word for true means straight. Another way that we might use the word true has to do with a friendship or a relationship. He or she is very true to me as a friend. He, has, he or she is truly devoted. Those are all great ways that we can use the word and ways that we may use it from time to time, but I'd like to take a moment to just try and make sense of what it meant then. So we're going to do something that's actually a really reliable way to study your Bible. It's called the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith is a way where we interpret Scripture with Scripture. The best way to do that is to look within the book to see how the author uses that word. So if you would, I have just a few passages for you to turn to today. And here's the first one of those in John chapter 1. Turn over to John chapter 1 for me. I want to show you how this word is used in a couple of places so we can begin to make sense of it. If this is a potent moment where our Lord is sharing his final words before he goes to the cross then any time that we take to really try and make sense of what he's saying means that we may actually share the eye contact that they had with him that night. So it's a fitting time for us to really stop down and say, Lord, what are you saying to them in your final moments before you go to the cross? Here's the first of two passages where this word is used in the book of John in chapter 1, verse 9. It says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, let me see if I can kind of help you make sense of how this word is used. Let me just preface it with this thought. The opposite of true is not necessarily untrue. The opposite of true isn't necessarily false. This word and the way it's used here in this passage is sort of bringing out this sense of something else that might be inferior or subordinate to the true light. It's like he's implying something that might be a partial version of a whole version or an imperfect representation of a perfect representation. So in some ways what he's saying here in this statement, he is the true light which gives light to everyone that's coming into the world, 
He's using something called contrast. He is the true light in contrast to other lights that we are very familiar with, like the sun, like the moon, like light sources, a candle that we might be looking at this morning. Those are versions of light, but they are imperfect, incomplete, shadow versions of the substance that is Christ. When he's speaking of true here, he is speaking in contrast, relative things that are imperfect, that are incomplete, that are partial, that are shadows of the substance that is Christ. He is the true light in contrast to the sun, the sunrise, the moonlight. All those things point to him because he is supreme light. He is ultimate light. He is the genuine light. Here's the other only reference in the book of John is in John chapter 6. Turn over to John chapter 6. Looking in verse 32. This is after Jesus has fed the multitudes. He's walked on the water by this point. Actually, he fed the multitudes and then walked on the water. Here in verse, and then he taught them about the feeding that he gave them the day before. And here in verse 32 is where he's speaking about that. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Okay, he gave them some bread from heaven, right? There was some bread that came to them from heaven. It's called manna. That's real stuff. But he says, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. See, there it is again, used as contrast. He is true bread contrasted with manna, which is real stuff, real bread. It's not false bread. It's not untrue bread. He's what that bread pointed to. He's the substance of which that was only shadow. He's the fulfillment of that as a type. He is supreme and preeminent superior bread. Okay. So the I am statements are statements of deity, but they're also declarations bringing into focus the person who's making the statement. They're telling us something about this person who's declaring himself to be God. They're disclosing his character and his being, and in this case, the person of God. So we're going to spend the next few minutes trying to make sense of the shadow. If he's true vine, he declares then he's implying there's a shadow vine. If he's perfect vine, then there has to be some imperfect vine. If he's used over the course of this book, just in those two examples, contrast to bring out the meaning of true, then we're going to follow that lead and consider what must be this shadow vine that is pointing to and helping us understand the true vine. If he's the true and perfect vine, then who on earth is the shadow? I shared a few weeks ago a sort of a guide. Go ahead and turn over to Isaiah chapter 5. And while you're turning there, I'll share with you why I'm doing this. I shared a few weeks ago a guide. I haven't gotten the, the language of this down yet, but I'm going to keep working at it. Uh, a guide to making sense of Scripture of going backwards and going sideways. Okay, that's not the best description. Going old and going around. 
Okay, if you hit, read a passage of Scripture, for example, where we are in John chapter 15, going backwards and going older is to go to the Old Testament to try and make sense of what's being said right here. And going around and beside is going to the contextual passages on either side of that particular passage. We're going to do both this morning. But we're going to spend the majority of our time going older to try and make sense of this identification of Israel as the vine. So look at Isaiah chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. If you'd like to kind of have ready the other passages, you can have Ezekiel 15 and Psalm 80 ready. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read these passages and sort of draw out a few things that we're going to try together make sense, to together make sense of this reference to the vine. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I've not already done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. What's described in this passage is a beautiful vineyard, well planted, uh, and, but yet we, uh, yielding wild and stinking and sour grapes. And this is clearly this last passage. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The contrast here he's clearly pointing back to is the contrast of the old Israel and the people of God to Christ as being the true Israel. He's speaking of the people of God and identifying them as the vine. And sadly in this statement, he's identifying in verse 5 and 6, this vineyard is not worth tending. I planted it. It was well cared for. But it's not worth tending anymore because all it yields is sour grapes. Man, just consider what must be happening here. I'll tell you, I've been to a couple of vineyards over the years. Christy and I went to a vineyard in New Zealand years ago. We were on an anniversary trip and uh, had always wanted to go to New Zealand. It's beautiful. I mean, what an amazing place. We toured a vineyard, and we found out these, these vineyards have, uh, they know their vines so well that they know what kind of wine is going to be produced on different slopes. They have so dialed in over the generations of devotion to the vineyard that they know what flavor will be produced from what sun hits what uh, uh, hillside at what moment. These generations of people have been devoted to these vines and caring for them like their their own children. Another time that we've uh, uh, visited a vineyard was in Florence. A man told us the story about this vineyard and all that had taken place there and all the generations that attended to this vineyard and this vine and the history of the vine and how it was cared for. These places were treated with great care. 
And yet here this vine dresser says, I'm going to let all, all passers by in to ravage this vineyard. It's not worth tending anymore. It's a sad statement about Israel. Let's look now at Ezekiel chapter 15. Ezekiel chapter 15. And I want you to keep a finger in Ezekiel 15 and then a finger in Psalm 80 here in a moment. These are the two places we're going to come back to. Actually, we'll come back to Isaiah 5 as well. So you can just put a little bookmark or something in all three of these. Ezekiel chapter 15, I'm going to read this entire chapter. It's really brief, and the entire chapter is about the useless vine. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood, the vine branch that is among the trees of the forest? Is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it's given to fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, it's useful. Is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, was it used for nothing? Or it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it's charred, can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I've given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. I will make the land desolate because they've acted faithlessly, declares the Lord. This is another little shade of uh, insight that's brought into the story here from added to Isaiah 5. We can add Ezekiel 15 and see this, this thought of the wood of a, a vine is good for absolutely nothing in and of itself. You don't make a peg out of vine wood. If you do, you hang your hat on it, it goes beep, and it hits the falls to the ground. You put it in a fire, it's about all you're going to get out of is firewood, and it's not even going to be firewood. That vine wood is made for one thing, fruit bearing period. And this house of Israel was not bearing fruit. Add Ezekiel 15 to Isaiah 5, and you get this picture that Israel is not worth tending, and Israel is just good for burning. Good for nothing more than burning. All right, look at Psalm 80. Psalm 80 is the third place we're going. We're not spending a lot of time in each of these, but we're going to appreciate what, what we're developing here in a moment. Psalm 80, beginning in verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You've fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You planted it well. You cared for it. You tended it. 
You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. You, it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the rivers. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along may pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. And the songs of a people reflect what's going on among the people. The songs, in this case, this psalm tells us that this people are crying out, Lord, restore us. What God has said in Isaiah 5 and Ezekiel 15 is happening while this song is written. The neighbors are ravaging the vineyard. Man, it's a terrible circumstance, and they're crying out, Restore us, O God of hosts, as they had been receiving really hard treatment from the Gentile neighbors. In verse 7, it says, A vine is brought out of Egypt. It's been well planted. It flourished and it grew, but then the walls and the hedges were broken down and its fruit ravaged by passersby and boars. This vineyard is not worth tending, This vineyard is good for nothing more than burning. The story of Israel, if we're going old and we're going backwards and we're going to try and make sense of what Jesus has declared, we have to consider that the story of Israel is a vineyard ravaged. You might wonder why. I hope you're wondering why. Because we're going to consider that in the next few minutes. Each time, go back to Isaiah 5. We're going to develop this a little bit more, each of these. Each time Israel is is identified as the vine, it's an indictment for fruitlessness. Every time that imagery, that metaphor is used, it's in the context of an indictment for fruitlessness. Here's the first one that we can consider Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 7, we left off about halfway through verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. We've identified that shadow. We've identified that imperfect contrast. It says, the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And this vine dresser, the vineyard owner, shows up to see what kind of fruit, what kind of grapes are being yielded here. He says, he looked for justice and behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This vineyard, this, or this vine dresser, this vineyard owner shows up and he finds sour grapes. What a sad, you like my little picture here? I hesitated to put that up there, but it'll, it'll be something you remember. He looked for good grapes. He looked for a yield. He looked for a return that was a reflection of what had been put into it. But all he got was sour grapes. I was thinking about a, a little illustration that might help us kind of connect to this. Some, there's some business owners in here who can connect to this thought. And if you're not a business owner, you can imagine what this might be like. You have a business that has been hard won. You've built a business from scratch. It's hard one. You're going on vacation or you're going out of town for a period of time and you come back and you find all your employees either not there, they're off, you know, at the park, off at home, doing all kind of all manner of stuff, but not working, or you find them there, but not working. Imagine this place that you poured yourself into and you show up and they're actually, I was thinking maybe playing solitaire on their computer. Does anybody ever still do that? Playing solitaire? Maybe they're doing what I did in high school, shooting spitballs. 
okay? There's little paper uh, footballs that you can shape, you know, that you, you, and maybe they're doing that. Maybe they're making paper airplanes. They're doing everything but working, and how would that leave you? Another thing that they might be doing is you might find them actually making out with one another in each other's cubicles. That might be a weird image, but that's actually more in keeping what's actually going on in Israel. This idea, this little image that I just came up with is actually something that is, is uh, fleshed out in a number of the parables that Jesus told over the course of his ministry. And I've wondered every time he's t- telling these parables if the Sadducees and Pharisees are standing around like with, standing there with their mouth ajar, like dumb face, going, I think he's talking about us. Exactly he's talking about you. The boss left and came home, and it's yielded nothing but sour grapes, no fruit, no production. Instead, you're making out in each other's cubicles. Verses 8 through 12 get a little more focus to what's actually going on in Israel. Verse 8 says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room. And you're made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. See, that's what happens when you just add more stuff to your life. House to house and field to field, you find yourself alone. Because your neighbors are further and further away. Because you've got all this property. All this space. But there you sit alone. And that's what he said. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing. Surely many houses shall be desolate. Large and beautiful houses without inhabitants. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, and who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. This people, this people of God, We're not talking about the Canaanites, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Hittites, Philistines. I already named the Hittites twice. Philistines. We're talking about the people of God. And at this point, they're characterized as just collecting more stuff and carousing. He's looking for justice. He finds an outcry. Man, bad, sour grapes. The sum and total of their lives is what they can amass and when and where they're going to get their next buzz. Man, it's sad, isn't it? A vineyard ravaged. Ezekiel 15, look there with me. Ezekiel 15, I want you to see what's right next to Ezekiel 15. If you know your Ezekiel, which few do, I mean, I know it's kind of a dusty section of our Bible. I don't hear a lot of devotionals from Ezekiel. I'm reading Ezekiel right now. I don't hear anybody ever saying that. But if you're familiar with the book of Ezekiel, you know what the neighbor of Ezekiel 15 is. Ezekiel 16. Anybody that knows Ezekiel knows exactly what I'm talking about. Ezekiel 16 is the one chapter that I can't read without notice for the parents in the room. So you may or may not bring your children. It may be the most graphic chapter in our Bible. And it's the neighbor to chapter 15. I want to just show you. Chapter 15 is titled, Jerusalem, a useless vine. Chapter 16 is titled, The Lord's Faithless Bride. The neighbor right there to the useless vine is the faithless 
bride. I will read a couple of excerpts because I think it's worth considering. Verse 26, you played the whore with the Egyptians, speaking of Israel. Your lustful neighbors multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. The nation of Israel was great at making deals with all the neighbors and not trusting their God. And the Egyptians is a great example. Look at verse 28. That's not the only ones that they did this with. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them, and still you were not satisfied. Verse 29. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea. And even with this, you were not satisfied. You made deals with all the neighbors and did not trust the vine dresser. You are a vine well planted, but you did not trust the Lord. Look at verse 31. This is a sad indictment. He says, you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. A prostitute at least takes payment. Later in verse 34, he says, you actually gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. Man, we're talking about a vineyard destroyed and ravaged. Jeremiah was someone who actually thought these things, these thoughts together. It's an interesting two passages, two verses that are put right beside each other. This thing, this concept that we're reconnecting, Ezekiel 15 and Ezekiel 16. A fruitless vine and a faithless bride. Jeremiah says this. In chapter 2, he says, For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, yet on every green hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. That's Ezekiel 16. Yet I planted you a choice vine. Here's Ezekiel 15. Holy of pure seed, how then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Those two metaphors sit right by side and they're graphic and they're tragic whoredom under every green tree and wild grapes from the choice vine the more God blessed them the more they hoard the more God nourished them and tended to them the more they yielded sour are no grapes The vine, Israel, this imperfect vine we're considering this morning in contrast to the perfect had been blessed beyond measure. But they proved fruitless. Listen to this statement, people of God. They found pleasure in things and activities other than God. They trusted in people's or resources more than they trusted in their God. That's their crime. Can we hear that together here just for a moment as a people of God? As also the people of God? Can I import us into that message? Or that message into this room? Where we together can consider what their crime was. They found pleasure in things and activities other than God, more than God. And they trusted in things and resources, and in this case, other people groups, other governments, more than their God. The more God blessed them, the more they sinned. 
Israel is definitely not the true vine. Definitely not the true vine. They are a terribly imperfect version of what he declares that he is true. There's good news for Israel, though. Go back to Psalm 80, and we're going to land this plane. Psalm 80. I left off reading in a section that we're going to pick back up. I left off reading in verse 13. Let's remember the songs of a people reflect the heart of a people in context of what's going on with this people. And you can pick back up in verse 14 here in a moment, but let me sort of prepare the soil or prepare the ground here. There's good news for Israel here. It's going to be good news for the world also. And the good news isn't that they somehow figured out how to do the right thing. If you're like me, that that should be good news for you too. The good news isn't that they somehow evolved into a higher, purer form. The exiles did not purify the nation of Israel. (laughs) The good news wasn't that man somehow bucked up, gritted his teeth, and mustered fidelity that had been lacking in the past. The good news and answer to Israel's problem came from without, and it came ultimately from above. Let's look at the rest of Psalm 80, beginning in verse 14. Turn again, O God of Israel. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. This people is crying out. The vineyard is ravaged. It's desolate. We're the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you've made strong for yourself, they've burned it with fire, just like you promised they would. They've cut it down that they may perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself, that we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Some of the things you can draw out of there, they're crying out, Turn again, vine dresser. Turn again to the vine. Turn again to the vineyard. Turn again, husband, to the whore of Ezekiel 16. Turn again to us. Look down from heaven. Have regard for this vine. Give us life in verse 18. Verse 19, restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Here's the good news for Israel and the good news for the people in this room who also need a replacement vine. Jesus fulfills all of the above. Jesus is how and in whom all of the above take place. He is how the God of hosts, the Lord of hosts, will look down on his people. He is how the Lord, the God of hosts, has turned again to the garden and the vineyard. He is how God had regard for his people. He is how his people again find life. He is how we are restored. He is how his face has shone on us by being and doing what the old imperfect vine and everyone else in this room could never do on our own. He fulfilled it perfectly. He's the true vine. I hope that's satisfying. I hope that's satisfying to you. 
I have but three things for you this morning. Just actually two things, just in application, just brief thoughts at the end. Jesus is the perfect version of the imperfect. He's the fulfillment of that shadow that was Israel. He's the whole version of the partial. He was what Israel wasn't, faithful and fruit-bearing. And not only was faithful and fruit-bearing, he still is because he lives and reigns and rules and continues to be all of the above. So the first thing I ask you this morning, if your heart is stirred by this notion, then just keep letting it stir. There's a word for that. It's called worship. The first application point is worship. Enjoy this true vine. Think on this true vine, not only here on Sunday morning. Think on this true vine as you're shaving on Monday, as you're putting on makeup on Tuesday, depending, I'm trying to hit everybody here in the room. As you're getting ready for school on Wednesday, as you're having dinner, to, dinner together as a family on Thursday, as you're going about your workday, wherever you may work, Think on and enjoy this true vine. Enjoy that. Here's the point. You don't need to be a Jew to be as guilty as the Jews. Because we have, we're related to Adam. So just in our relationship to Adam, we needed a replacement vine just like Israel did. Reflecting on that and enjoying that has a name and it's called worship. So worship. That's the first and foremost Thing. Worship and enjoy and delight in Christ. And here's the second. Unite to him in faith and abide in him. Unite to him in faith and abide in him. Let me show you this passage sort of playing out in this passage that we've considered or this thought playing out. Some of the language. I want you to just think about this. I'm going to read the passage where we began this morning. In John 15, I want you to listen to some, some, pay attention for something like indwelling, mutual indwelling, and incorporation. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This passage is saturated with this thought of incorporation and mutual indwelling. And the way that happens is by uniting to him by faith. Uniting to Christ by faith. Now, let me just address this. That might sound like it's so unrealistic and impractical. I, we got a lot of L3 people, architects, we got all kinds of people in the room here, like real linear, you know, like A plus B equals C. And you know, Help me see how this plays out. Let me just encourage you with this thought. We'd had a wedding just last Sunday, didn't we? Where's Grace? And there they are. Grace and Michael. Yes, newlyweds. That's a week. You got a week under your belt, man. You're seasoned veterans. <laughs> Giving advice to everybody else. 
Nobody shows up at a wedding and says, this is so impractical. This doesn't make sense. This is not functionally making sense. You show up at a wedding and realize something mystical is taking place, and it's profound. Just because something's mystical doesn't mean that it's not worthy of enjoying. And even for the most linear of people, you can enjoy, you show up at a wedding and you leave feeling like, man, that was pretty great. They are one. They are united to one another in covenant. You enjoy that thought as you go to a wedding. I want you to consider this morning, as I'm appealing to you to unite to Christ by faith, what I'm asking you to do is to cast your lot with this person who declared himself to be God. Believe what he said. Believe with me and pretty much everybody else in this room that he is who he said he was. That he left a tomb vacant 2,000 years ago. He did what no one else could do. He accomplished what no one else could accomplish. If you're trusting in that, you're believing in that, you're uniting to him by faith. And guess what happens from that point on? Is you abide. You abide in him. When you unite to him by faith, a lot of what happens with us in Christ is what happens with the two of them a week ago. What is his becomes hers, and what's hers becomes his. And here's the good news of Easter morning for us. What happened on Friday, the price that he paid is reckoned ours. Yes, it's something mystical when you unite to him by faith, but it's pretty awesome considering that every sin that you've ever committed, past, present, or future, he paid for on Friday 2,000 years ago because you married him. (laughs) What he has is yours. That price that he paid is credited as yours. That's the scandal of the gospel. But that's only half of it. Here's the rest of it. What happened on Sunday morning when he left that tomb vacant? When he rose from the dead? Remember what he has is yours? His victory over death is also yours. Amen? (laughs) What? When you enjoy that together, man, we're worshiping in here right now, enjoying that together united to him by faith, and we begin a journey that many of us have been on for years of abiding in him. Like a branch abides in the vine, we take nourishment. We enjoy on that Monday morning where we're shaving. Let's see if I can remember these. Tuesday when we're putting on makeup. Wednesday when we're getting ready for school. Thursday when we're having dinner. I think I got it. Right? That's abiding. You're abiding in him when you gather with his bride week by week because guess where he is? He's with his people. He's with his bride, just like a wedding, just like a marriage would be. You come and take and eat the meal that he serves you every week. You hear from him through the teaching and preaching of the word. You gather with him as you sing true things back to him about him. That's all abiding. So my appeal to you this morning is worship. Unite to him by faith if you've never done that. You can do that right here, right now. You can do it right here, right now, where you say, I believe he is who he says he is. I'm asking him for my sins to be nailed to that cross that he paid for on Friday. I want to be married. I want what's his to be counted and reckoned and credited as mine. And I want that victory that we celebrate this morning over death 
to also be mine. Believe him and then abide. Just stick with him. Stick with him. Let's pray. Lord, what a sweet, sweet journey this has been, enjoying the I am statements of John. What a wonderful Savior we have, Lord. We enjoy, enjoy him, especially this morning as the vine, as the true vine in contrast to the tragic, ravaged vineyard. Sour grapes, disappointing, fruitless. Lord, that's our lot apart from union with Christ. And we enjoy that you have reckoned and credited all his good things and his terrible price to us. We enjoy that together in Christ's precious name. Amen. I want to ask you, if you don't have a supper, uh, to grab a little supper kit. Uh, you may not have known to do that on the way in. Somebody may have helped you with that. You can see Robert right here in the uh, turquoise blue, some version of blue shirt. Good handsome shirt, by the way, Robert. I'm not, not criticizing at all. It's a good Easter color. Grab one of those little meal kits. I can't, I'm very eager for the time where we go back to passing the offering, I mean the um, supper elements. That's a sweet time as the people of God. So, But between now and then, we still have much of these. We've got to use these up anyway, so <laughs> we know that God can, God can use a little meal kit. I'm going to read from the account in Matthew of the Lord's Supper, and then we'll take and eat our meal together. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. Maybe think of something, maybe to kind of connect where we've been this morning in, our, in the Word. Maybe think about this like a bunch of, like, not, I don't want to say a bunch of brides, like one big bride. Because that's really what we are. Right? We're, we think too individually too often. Let's think corporately. The bride this morning taking and eating a meal that the groom has given us. He's prepared it for us. And it wasn't just a hard day in the kitchen. I mean, some of y'all are like serious cooks, you know. I know you can really get it done. It's hard cooking, right? We're talking about a lifetime of sinlessness. We're talking about unjust trials. We're talking about beatings and spit and flogging. We're talking about scorn that he wasn't due. We're talking about him being nailed to a cross. He's prepared a meal for us, and it cost his broken body. It was an expensive meal this groom has given us. He said, take and eat. This is my body. Together as the bride of Christ, let's take and eat in faith. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it. All of you, let's take and drink in faith. Let's pray and we'll continue in song. Lord, what a hearty meal. We are so thankful for our groom. We're so thankful for the provision that he made for us, not only of the meal that he prepared for us, but the meal that he is. We count him satisfying, Lord. We count him enough. We are full and overflowing. We are so grateful. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Let's continue in song.